Hi everyone, peace and good evening to you. Once again, we at AMIA, Archdiocesan Ministry of Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs, in collaboration with Catholics at Home, are inviting you to another evening to engage in another segment on world religions. AMIA desires to break barriers towards other religions by creating a better understanding and cordial friendship. The hope of establishing greater peace in the hope of establishing greater peace and harmony in Malaysia. This evening's conversation is special for three reasons. Firstly, because it is a relatively new religion, only 177 years old, and so not much is known. It is the Baha'i faith. Secondly, our speakers comprise of two young ladies and a young Orangasli gentleman. A young evening indeed. I'm feeling very young myself. That makes it unique. Thirdly, because of you viewers who are faithfully following us throughout this whole season. Last week, we had Father Michael Chua. And today, we, had, we have Father Clarence with us, back with us, my kampong boy, as we introduced in the beginning of the session, the first very first session. So let us get started. And now over to you, Father Clarence. Hi, good evening, Father Xavier. How are you? Very good, very good, Father. So welcome once again, everyone, to another episode of uh, Understanding World Religions. I think this is week number six, I believe. Six, yes. Yeah, week number right. six. Uh, and like Father Xavier says, uh, said, just said, uh, it's a faith that uh, we have heard about, but probably something that uh, we do not know much about. Uh, I myself will, will confess that uh, I don't really know much and I'm hoping to learn a lot more uh, this evening uh, about the, the Baha'i faith. Um, Father Xavier, what about yourself? Definitely. Me too. Me too, Father. I'm also excited to know more about this faith. So, so this evening, as you said, we have, we have three young people joining two other young people. Uh, that's both of us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we have five young people five this young evening. People. Uh, we're going to share and we're going to talk a little bit uh, and, and to hope that people will understand better uh, the Baha'i faith. Uh, let's, let's bring in our guests this evening. Let's not keep them waiting. Uh, yeah, welcome, welcome. Wel welcome, welcome, Delaney. Welcome, Joanna. Welcome, Muklis. Uh, welcome to Catholics at Home podcast. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking time to, to be here with us this evening. I know it's a it's a midweek uh, uh, evening, uh, 8 p.m. It's like almost dinner time, 
Uh, but for having taken uh, set aside this time to to share a little bit about the Baha'i Faith, uh, we are truly grateful for this opportunity to have this conversation with you. Uh, but before we proceed, perhaps uh, I would like just like to ask uh, each one of you if you could just uh, introduce yourself to uh, to our viewers this evening. Uh, you have introduced ourselves. We have met. Uh, this is the second time I'm meeting uh, the three of you. Uh, but our viewers have not met you at all. So if you could just give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, uh, where you come from, and, and what uh, role do you play uh, in the, the Baha'i faith uh, community? Uh, Delaney, would you like to start? Uh, sure, Father. So good evening, everyone. My name is Delaney. I'm from Kuala Lumpur, and I'm serving as a member of the Malaysian Baha'i Office of External Affairs. And I'm also a member of the Local Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Kuala Lumpur. Who would like to go next? Joanna? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you, Father. Um, hi, everyone. Good evening. My name is Joanna. I'm a member of the Baha'i community of Subang Daya. At the same time, I'm also serving as a coordinator for the Spiritual Education uh, for Children program at Subang Daya. All right. Muklis, don't don't feel slighted. Uh, you're not the last. We always think that we give ladies first, so okay. we give the two ladies first to introduce themselves. Equally important, would you like to introduce yourself to us? Yeah, yeah sure. Thank you, Father. Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I am Muklis. I came from uh, Kapong Rasti, Kapong Changbido Pera, and I'm one among the nine members serving in the um, National Assembly of the Baha'is of Malaysia. And uh, within this assembly, I'm working in the office of Asli Affairs, in which I'm studying uh, how the Baha'i teaching can be best applied within the reality of the Committee, and how the current good cultural practices of the Committee can be enriched into a meaningful and higher functioning. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and on behalf of all of our viewers, uh, welcome once again uh, to another a uh, conversation uh, that we have been having in this past weeks. We have had many other religions. Uh, this evening, we are we are privileged to have you with us. Let's just jump straight into this conversation. Uh, let me begin now, just to start off. We always start off by asking, you know, what are the core core, core beliefs of a particular particular faith? Uh, if I could address this to to Delaney, um, help us to understand at least the basic principles. I mean. Uh, the central figure in the Baha'i faith, and, and what are some of the basic teachings that you would see universally being practiced uh, in the Baha'i faith throughout the world? All right, sure, Father. Okay, so in order for us to understand what the core teachings of the Baha'i faith are about, we have to really begin from the start, as in, where did the Baha'i faith begin? So the origins of the Baha'i faith can be traced back to uh, Persia, which is now known as present-day Iran, um, in the year 1844. And in 1844, um, a man named the Bab, okay, whose title means the gate, he declared his mission. And his mission was to prepare the world for the coming of the promised one of all the ages. So in traditions of the past, uh, there was always a reference to a great one who would come and usher in an age of peace and justice. And so the Bab um, was the herald of the Baha'i faith. Uh, in a way, like how John the Baptist prepared the world for the coming of Christ, um, the Bab prepared the world for the coming of the Promised One. So, 19 years later, in 1863, um, Baha'u'llah, whose name means the glory of God, uh, proclaimed to the world that he was the Promised One that had been foretold by the Bab. 
And so it was in this period from 1863 to 1892, that was when he ascended, um, that Baha'u'llah began to expound on the teachings of the faith. And he also openly addressed the leaders of the world at that time in his tablets. Um, and so after Baha'u'llah's ascension in 1892, um, he appointed his eldest son, Abdul Baha, as the authorized interpreter of his teachings, as well as the head of the faith. And so Abdul Baha, uh, led or guided the world, uh, the world Baha'i community in that period from uh, 1892 to his uh, passing in 1921. And uh, yeah, one of my friends will explain further what happens after that, after Abdul Baha's passing. But Abdul Baha is someone that um, the Baha'is feel a very strong connection with because um, his title is the perfect exemplar. And what we mean by a perfect exemplar here is that he embodied all the principles of his father's faith. And so um, for Baha'is to, to strive to attain that standard of what it means to be a true Baha'i, we look to the example of Abdul Baha. All right, so those are the three central figures. Now, to talk about the basic core teachings of the Baha'i faith, um, we need to understand the purpose of Baha'u'llah's appearance in the world. Now, as I mentioned that Baha'u'llah proclaimed that he was the promised one, um, his purpose was to unite all mankind. So in order to usher in this age of peace and justice, um, it is necessary for the whole world to come together. And he has this very powerful line that I'd like to share with you. He says, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. And this just embodies the whole idea that we are essentially one, right? Um, so the main principle of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of mankind. And what we mean by oneness here is that there shouldn't be any distinctions in terms of race, class, um, creed, you know, nationality, or any sort of other, uh, you know, man-made perceptions of what might distinguish one man from another. But really, oneness is what is needed for us to recognize that we are inherently the same, you know, inside and outside. Um, we may look different, but we're all um, spiritual in nature, and we all have this capacity to know God and to also worship Him. So in relation with this concept of oneness, um, there is also another principle that I'd like to share, which is the nobility of man. Uh, this means that we are all born noble. Uh, inherently, we all have this natural capacity to, um, to experience, you know, um, spiritual uh, feelings, right? So to be able to connect with our Creator, to, to reach out to one another, to pray. Um, these are stirrings of the soul. And this nobility also reminds us that we all have a role to play in the fortunes of humanity. So we're looking at how the Baha'i faith is working towards uni unity and, and trying to bring people together. It is the responsibility of every individual in this world that we all have this um, capacity to bring forward or to carry forward an ever advancing civilization that each of us in whatever means possible right even if we have a very small role to play we are still important in this world and that we each can contribute to the betterment of the world if you can try and help me understand uh, in the sense that uh, so what is what is what is the role of baha'u'llah i mean is he is he somebody who points towards God? Is he what? What is he viewed at, as? All right. 
So um, Baha'u'llah is a manifestation of God, okay? And in in his explanation of, you know, um, the nature of God itself, right? Um, he says that God is unknowable, right? God is an unknowable essence. So because we cannot know God directly by virtue of the fact that our minds are very limited, um, being creation itself, you know, it's hard for us to actually understand the nature of the creator. And so Baha'u'llah tells us that the only way in which we can know God, right, is through his divine uh, divine educators or what we call manifestations of God. And God sends these manifestations of God from time to time in history. So Baha'u'llah refers to himself as a manifestation of God and we pray to God, right, because we understand that it's through the manifestations of God that we get to know a glimpse of his essence, right? But even then, Baha'u'llah says that God is beyond the words that we have in our language, you know. Even if we say he is the almighty, the all-powerful, um, our understanding of almighty and all-powerful is still very much limited. And God is beyond that. But Baha'u'llah tells us that, yes, um, with these manifestations of God that are sent from time to time, humanity is able to understand uh, God in, in, in little bits, you know, at a time. And, and that's also why we see there is a, a, a change in our practices uh, from one faith tradition to the other, because there are also, um, you could say, advancements in our understanding of the concept of God. Like, um, you could think of these divine messengers as like physicians, like doctors, um, who at any point in time of history, recognized that there was a need among the people who lived in that age and, and prescribed a remedy that would allow the people of that period to turn to God in some way. So if the, the practice of praying to God required the use of certain um, rituals, um, then that was you know, what was required at the time. And so at each point in history, we will see some differences in the practices of different religious groups. Uh, but the idea is that we're all still turning to the creator. So this is very much also in line with the principle of the oneness of God and also the oneness of religion. That religion is actually progressive, that these manifestations of God come at different points in history to guide us and to enable us to... Um, understand what it means to apply his teachings in the life of that moment that we live in. So Baha'u'llah's teachings are now for today. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, sharing on you, on, on your part, uh, Delaney. Uh, speaking so much about that, uh, I just like, I'm, bit, I'm kind of curious. I would like to address this to Muklis. What does Baha'i itself mean, the word Baha'i itself? Muklis, maybe you could share with us what Baha'i means. Okay, thank you, Father. Okay, um, so now uh, the word Baha'i Baha'i consists of two parts, Baha and the suffix E. And as for Baha, Baha'u'llah has revealed that uh, it is the greatest name of God. Um, it's mean glory or splendor. While the suffix E is used to indicate a person of or the people of. So Baha'is are the people of Baha, the people who serve God and the community as a sign of um, 
embracing the virtues and qualities of God, which is the most uh, glorious, the most stupendous, who uh, bestow us mercy and bounty in times of either victory or crisis in our effort uh, to serve for the betterment of our community. Yeah. Okay, that's nice. Yeah, maybe I would like to know, uh, how does one become a Baha'i? Is there any initiation on process or process to become a Baha'i? Well, please, maybe you could also share along that line. What would, is there any special okay. initiation or process to become a Baha'i? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, actually, uh, there is no initiation to become a Baha'i uh, because in the book called Hidden Words written by Baha'u'llah uh, himself, it says that um, he that be that man be just and himself committed in pity is not of me, even though he bear my name. And uh, further on, uh, Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, who Baha'u'llah himself has raised with love, care, and attention until become a perfect example of service for Baha'is to follow, uh, used to say that to be a Baha'i simply means to love humanity and to work for universal brotherhood, live a life uh, characterized by a service. So in short, become a Baha'i is to accept Baha'u'llah as the manifestations of God and uh, to live a life characterized by service. Um, but just as a matter of keeping records with the government, uh, we do have a res registration process. Uh, last time it was like assigning a declaration card, but then as time passes by, we are learning that not every community is available with the cards, especially uh, with the community living um, deep in the jungle. So usually these individuals, they may convey their wishes, uh, either verbal or written, to the nearest uh, local spiritual assembly. Okay. If you if you say if you say that there are no uh, initiation processes, uh, Mukles, I mean, if there is, there isn't, what would be the, you know, is there, you know, I'm trying to understand because from the tradition that I come and many other religions, is there a special ritual uh, that you go through, uh, that you profess something that you you believe in this particular faith? with this and are there other religious practices that that are central to the baha'i faith okay um as an individual who say that uh, he believe in baha'u'llah like myself um I'm, i am obliged uh, to perform um, obligatory prayer so this obligatory prayer, Baha'u'llah has revealed three obligatory prayer, which is uh, that's short, medium, and long, and any one of which can be chosen. And when used in the way prescribed, it, it actually fulfills the obligation. Uh, this should be said individually, but are not dependent on a private support. Um, performing ablution, like uh, washing the hands and face, in preparation of the prayer and facing in the directions of the Kibleh or the point of adoration, which is the Eker, are fixed requirements for the recitations of obligatory prayers. Um, so what I can say in, in, in one of the prayer, which is the short obligatory prayer, it's, it, it's remind us um, the purpose God created us, which is uh, to know and to worship God and also to really admire at the, at the power and um, 
the power of God and and to remind us how weak we are and how how we are very dependent uh, on, on on God. Joanna. Suddenly, we are, we are struck by by profound silence after Muklis spoke. <laughs> let's let's bring let's bring Joanna. Joanna has been very quiet. Let's bring Joanna into this conversation. For Xavier, over to you. Yeah, Joanna. What holy days? You know, like all all uh, religions have their holy days and holidays. Holidays tied up with holiday holidays. What holidays do Baha'i observe? Uh, what do you on these occasions? Do you do on these occasions? Especially, especially on these uh, special occasions of the Baha'i faith, you can share with us. Thank you for the questions. Um, there are eleven holy days that the Baha'i celebrate every year. So most of these holy days are important anniversaries in the history of the faith, which are associated with the birth, the passing, and the declarations of the central figures of the faith. But there are also festivities that we celebrate. One is the Nauruz, which is the Baha'i New Year. It falls on the um, 21st of March that we celebrate every year after a period of 19-day fast. So this Nauruz is like a new year, like a springtime for us. So another important occasion that uh, festivals for the Baha'i is the Festival of Rizwan. So Rizwan in Arabic means paradise. So um, this is a 12-day festivals, which the Baha'is actually celebrate from the around the 20th or the 21st of April to the 1st or 2nd of May. So it's a 12-day uh, festival because it commemorates the 12 days that Baha'u'llah spent in the Garden of Rezon in Baghdad back in 1863, when he declared his mission and announced his stations as the promised one of all the religions. So most of the festivals the Baha'is celebrates with prayers, and of course, we also um, put in our local culture. There can be music, there can be visits, yeah, there can be even exchanges of gifts. But celebrations aside, on the first day of Rizwan every year, um, the Baha'i communities will gather together and elect the nine members of the local spiritual assembly. So to differ from the common electoral process that we are familiar with, so that this is a very different kind of um, elections because there is no campaigning and there is no nominations. Every Baha'i member who reached the age of 21 can elect and is free to elect. Okay, so, so this administrative body that is envisioned by Baha'u'llah, it's founded on a set of unique electoral and also consultative principles. Just for the interest of the audience, you know that the Baha'is actually have their own calendar. So <laughs> maybe I can share a little bit about that. So the Baha'i calendar is also called the Badi calendar. So Badi in, in um, Arabic, it's known as to create a new, it's unique or wondrous. That's the meaning of the Badi calendar. So it is a solar calendar that comprises of 19 months every year. So in every month, there is 19 days. So how nice is this if you receive your salary every 19 days instead of 30 days, right? Yeah, so every 19 days, the Baha'is actually um, gather together for a 19-day feast. This is one of our um, monthly gathering every 19 days. I hope that so answers. So, so how, how many days are there in that calendar? So 19? Right, days so 19 yeah, 19 times nine, uh, 19, there's 361. But to make up the whole calendar year, there is actually four to five days of intercalary day that is before the uh, yeah before the last month of the 
uh, yeah, before the last month of the year. So in this intercalary days, the Baha'is are asked to engage in philanthropic works and yeah. So after these four or five days in the calorie days that make up of the year, the Baha'is will enter into a period of 19 days fast, which they abstain from food and drinks from morning to evening. And then after the period of fast, then comes the start of the new year, which is around the 20th or the 21st of March. All right. Okay. Uh, jo Joanna, if I, if I could just continue this conversation with you. Now, as we have been talking with all the other religions, uh, Every religion has got a holy book and they have a name for the holy book. Uh, help us understand a little bit. Is there a book for, or are there several books? Or what, what, are the, what are the sources uh, that you refer to uh, in the practice of the Baha'i faith? Is there one key book and then with many other books or traditions? Uh, help us understand what, what is that, that, scripture, that scripture for you? Okay, uh, thank you for the question. So for the Baha'is, we do have a most holy book that is called the Kitabi Akbas. Okay, it literally translates to the most holy book. Yeah, so um, beside this book, Baha'u'llah in his lifetime actually re revealed for over more than 15,000 tablets. Mm, so in this holy book, it's actually a book of law. But I think Delaney can share a little bit about this concept of laws that Baha'u'llah has revealed to us. Maybe it's nice to hear from Delaney. So if you're saying that this is a book uh, of laws and, and it, it is written by Baha'u'llah? Yeah. Yes, it is written by Baha'u'llah in his lifetime. All right. And it is about how to live your life according to some of these laws. Yep. And, right. and how is it divided? Is it divided into, into chapters or into... I, I'm just asking for the benefit of everyone who, have not, who has not seen one of these. Uh, how, how is it divided? Yeah, so maybe I could answer this part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Kitabi Akdas is is written in a way that there are many verses, okay, and it's just a, a, a book with many verses which um contain the the, the most important you know uh, commandments and, and also some of the injunctions that, that Baha'u'llah has made for, for the believers. And but the book that we, we have today is actually compiled with a, really a very special section with a synopsis and codification. There's also an appendix where there are questions and answers. So there were also times when uh, Baha'u'llah revealed the Kitabi Akdas while he was still alive. Uh, there were believers who asked him questions and uh, he, he actually clarified them, he explained them uh, to, to help the, the, the believers at the time to understand some of the, the laws. And also there is an appendix where there are notes for certain points that were mentioned in the, the main text itself because sometimes they're quite mystical. There are references or allusions to certain things that we, we may not understand just by looking at it, but some research has been done and there has been clarifications in the, in the appendices as well. So the, the book itself that you see today contains different sections and yeah, some of the most important um, you know, teachings or, you know, the most important commandments are, are encoded in this book. And what we can see today is is really um, more than just a book of laws, I would say. You know, there, there's so much more to it than just saying it's it's a, a list of do's and don'ts, basically. I'm just curious, what, what was the original language it was written? And I, th I, I believe it is, yeah. it is translated to many languages for people to understand. Uh, what was the original language? What is the original language that it was written in? 
So Baha'u'llah wrote mainly in Arabic, but also in Persian. Yeah, so the, those are the two main languages that, that these books were written in. But the translation work um, for most of the, the writings of Baha'u'llah um, was done by his great-grandson, Shoghi Effendi. Uh, so Shoghi Effendi is uh, the uh, guardian of the Baha'i faith. We, we, uh, we know that um, after the passing of Abdul Baha, um, Abdul Baha had actually left the will and testament and appointed his grandson as the guardian of the Baha'i faith. And so he was the center or the head of the faith for, for the period um, after Abdul Baha's passing. So Shoghi Effendi had this very amazing um, ability to uh, translate works you know, from Arabic and Persian into English. So he was actually a, an Oxford uh, University student. He never got to complete his studies, but he was very, very um, adept at using the English language, and he translated most of the works into English, um, most of the important ones. And, and as Joanna said, there are over 15,000 tablets, so we haven't even you know, scratched the surface of all the tablets there are. But from the English version, the other languages are translated based on the English version. Uh, so the, the, the Chinese version or the Tamil version that we see um, are actually translated from the English, English version. Yeah. Just to just to, to kind of know a little bit, I, I, I'm sure we're not able to, to you know, uh, grasp the, the fullness of, of, of the scripture, that you, the holy book that you have. Uh, you were saying that it is a book of, of, of rules, regulations, a little bit about how to conduct one's life. Uh, what would be like some, give us some examples of what are some of the restrictions that are different from in, in other religions? Uh, for someone who professes the Baha'i faith, uh, are, are there some prescribed restrictions? Whether you know whether it's in, in terms of uh, your, your your diet or in terms of your your clothing, or is there are there uh, is there something different? Well, I I wouldn't say there's anything that is uh, unusually different um, in the sense that. Yeah, we don't really have, you know, a certain dress code or we don't have, you know, certain kinds of um, restrictions with regard to diet. But if, if you're asking, like, is there anything that we can't consume, um, then the, the only thing that I can think of is um, any kind of intoxicating substances or alcoholic uh, drinks. And, and the reason for that, uh, Baha'u'llah says, is that it, it steals our sense of reason away. So um, we have been gifted with this you know, a uh, rational mind. Um, we shouldn't allow ourselves to, you know, uh, become less lucid in our thinking just because, you know, we, we've been partaken of some kind of substances that causes us to, to have, you know, a different kind of uh, way of thinking or acting, right? That would not be in keeping with our nobility. Yeah, so, yeah. So alcohol, alcohol is a prohibition uh, in the Baha'i faith. Yeah, All right, unless... Okay unless it is something that's prescribed as a medical uh, treatment yeah there are, there are certain kinds of treatments that may include the use of alcohol then it, this is only if the physician prescribes it you know yeah uh yeah very interesting uh, all the prohibitions are not uh, really prescribed very are this they are they really strictly a, uh, a rule that they they have to restrict themselves or are you, would you say that Baha'i people generally don't take uh, alcohol or is just that because of this uh, reason of losing their reason? Is that the reason or I mean, or just generally it is a law, law that they don't 
Delaney, how is it uh, understood? Um, well, yeah, the way that we understand our relationship with, with uh, the faith, right, and our obedience to the laws, um, you could say that it's one of, you know, really appreciating the wisdom behind uh, the reason these laws are, are created. And so when a prohibition such as this is, um, is you know, set in the book, book of laws, um, we, we also have to understand why this is necessary, right? It's for our protection. And, and, and God commands this because he loves us, right? We, we must know that like how, you know, when a parent tells a child, you know, you shouldn't touch, you shouldn't play with fire, you shouldn't touch the, the yes. fire, right? Um, they know that it is to protect the child. But of course, the child wouldn't understand that, right? Um, and so at, at this point in, in history, we understand that we've reached a certain age of maturity where we understand that when there are laws, you know, that there is a wisdom behind it. And when these laws are revealed and they come from God, it is out of God's love and mercy that he has prescribed these laws. So who are we to question and, you know, yes. try and test the boundaries and see if yes. they're right? Yeah, excellent, yeah. excellent, excellent, Eleni. That's a very nice answer. Yeah, yeah, but please, maybe I'll address this to you. Uh, Baha'i, I mean, uh, like all faiths, uh, Baha'i faith today, today as it were, uh, do you have a hate for the Baha'i faith? We have currently, do you have somebody who you're guiding uh, the hate of the faith? Someone who's as the head, whom official head that you have. Okay, thank you, Father. Yeah. So, as um, like myself living in the in the village, or like Ilani or Joanna living in the uh, urban setting, uh, there is a, a local assembly who is guiding uh, the local community of the Baha'is, and for in any country where Baha'i existed. Um, there is a national spirit assembly who is guiding for that particular uh, country. But for the global Baha'i community, we are abiding uh, our beloved uh, Universal House of Justice. Is that a person or? I didn't get you. The global head, you have a global head who. Yeah, as for the global global Baha'i community, uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, combining of, of different um, continents and country, we are abiding uh, the universal self of justice for guidance. Yeah, and and we actually we can even ask them um, any inquiry that we may wish to know uh, in terms of uh, really how to apply the teachings of Baha'u'llah uh, in our uh, local reality. Okay. And that's it. Where, they will guide us forward. Where is this global global uh, head, headquarters or the main central place? Where where is it stationed? Okay. So yeah, so the, it is located in the in the Haifa, Israel. I so ah. it's, it's become like an administrative um, offices. Okay, okay. Are there any sects or branches of the Baha'i faith that uh, apart from Baha'i, we, we understand Baha'i as one. But like others, other uh, faiths, do you have branches or sects that are or Baha'i faith is divided into? Um, can we address this as well? Okay, so uh, there is no branches or sects of Baha'i. 
like as I uh, yeah mentioned earlier, every committee in in any level is guiding by this uh, sacred institution. So as this is how the unity of the high committee is is preserved. I see. Thank you. Like in, like in, in the other faiths, uh, when we have had speakers, um, we have, for example, we have clerics uh, or we have, uh, you know, uh, priests. Uh, in, in the Baha'i faith, do you have something similar to that? Or who does who does the, the, the worship or the prayer service uh, in, in, the, in, in the Baha'i faith? Are, are special people appointed? Are there like, I mean... Uh, somebody who is an elder in the in, in or somebody who is more well versed is is considered as the leader of the community muklis okay yeah okay uh as for okay for example for a marriage ceremony uh, it was done uh, by the local spiritual assembly uh who witnessed uh who witnessed of the place of marriage of, of uh, these two couples. Uh, apart from that, uh, generally we, we don't we have uh, a, a central individual figure, but rather it's more to uh, uh, trusting the power of institution. Like another um, another example is that, uh, for the departed. Um, the departed one also the prayer for the departed can be done by by any any uh, high adult believers who is familiar uh, with the prayer. Yeah. So it, it doesn't focus specific to any individual. Every everyone is noble, so everyone is being put trust. Sure. Yeah, Joanna. Right. Uh, so in, in the Baha'i faith, there is no a single leader because like, there is no clerics in, in the Baha'i faith. So um, usually uh, the the administrative body is formed from nine members. As I mentioned earlier, at the local level, we have the local spiritual assembly. And at the national level, we also have nine members of the national spiritual assembly. And at the um, international levels, we have the Universal House of Justice, um, which is also formed by nine members that is... Um, that has been elected yeah so that that's what, what is what what is the significance of the number nine you seem to have nine at every level is there is there some significance to the number nine right uh so to answer your questions the number nine is is actually the highest natural number so in a sense it also symbolizes completeness and unity and perfection so just like our house of worship there is also nine sided I think besides that, there is also a trans. Uh, it also comes from the word Baha, and the numerical numbers actually equals to nine. Uh, maybe oh. Diluni can help me confirm that. <laughs> now, since since you since you have already brought the conversation about about your temple, how your temple is, uh, give us give us a, a visual or or a, a virtual or a imaginary tour of 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 how a, a Baha'i temple is like. I mean, like when you go in, what is there? Uh, are there different compart different parts of the of the temple? Uh, since you already started with the the temple, so I thought maybe we just discuss this a little bit uh, for the benefit of our viewers. Uh, and and where are the temples located? Let's let's take for example uh, in Malaysia, where where the where are the main ones? Yeah, sure. 
Okay, thank you for that question. So I think most of the audience know the Baha'i faith through the Lotus Temple in Nudan. That's one of the most famous temples. Yes, we, we have a temple, but it's more often called the House of Worship. So actually, beside the temple in the Lotus Temple in New Delhi, there is also other house of worships around the world, which includes the one in Wilmette in the USA, the United States. We also have one in Uganda, Africa, one in Sydney, Australia, in Panama, in Germany. And the nearest to us is the one in Patambang, Cambodia. Of course, there is a few, these are uh, a few more, these are just some examples. So just now you asked, do we have a house of worship in Malaysia? answer is not yet <laughs> so why don't we have one in uh, malaysia so in this regard maybe i need i can take this opportunity to share a little bit about these institutions of the house of worship so this institution it's called the mashiko atska which means the dawning place of the place of god the dawning place of the praise or the mansion of god so this mashiko atska it acts as a universal place of worships that is open to all inhabitants in that locality so irrespective of their religious afflictions, uh, affiliations, their background, their ethnicity or gender, everyone are welcome to pray and meditate in this house of worship. Because this edifice is actually dedicated to one God, the creator for all humanity. So all are welcome to pray in this uh, edifice. Yeah, so the, the founding, why we don't have this, coming back to these questions, why we don't have this house of worship in Malaysia yet, so the building of the house of worship is like a crowning process. It's not simply built when we have the means, the funds, or the land. It's only built when collective worship has become a culture for the local community. So in future, we envision that these houses of worship will be constructed in every town and village. Right now, we have our collective worships at the homes of friends that we share prayers, we study prayers with friends from all walks of life. So in essence, we're actually planting the seeds for this house of worship. So just an, another concept of house and worship, beside the main, yeah, if you can see um, the pictures of the house and worship has been shared on the screen. So beside this house of worship, it's only the central edifice of the Mashiko Atsuka because around it, there are many dependencies, uh, which means like some site buildings connected to it that is being progressively added to this Mashiko Atsuka. So these dependencies are dedicated to the social, the humanitarian, education, and scientific pursuits. So um, the buildings like the hospital, the drug dispensaries, the travelers' hospice, a house, uh, the, the school for the orphans, or a university for advanced studies will be progressively added around this house of worship. The reason being that because worship, although it, it forms a key tenet of the house of worships, um, in the writings, it's explicitly stated that the service to humanity is considered an outward expression of this inner transformation that worship brings about. So when we pray, it brings about the inner transformation and it also brings out the desire for us to serve the others. So that's through these um, integrations of both service and worship, then the role of the house of worship is better understood. So I think just now, Father Clarence also asked me another question, uh, which is like, what is inside the house of worship, right? So um, I've been to the uh, house of worship in India, in Delhi, some years back. So when I was inside, you can you can see long benches where you can sit for prayers. This um, it really it is designed to offer a quiet place for safe worship for everyone for all walks of life. But I was told that you know in Batambang, uh, Cambodia, there is no benches. 
because it's a culture for the local community to come in and sit with leg cross on the floor. So instead of the benches, floor cushions that is meant for this purpose is actually found in the temple. So the reason being that the construction of the house of worship actually harmonized with the local culture and daily life of those people who will gather and pray inside. So this task actually um, calls for the combinations of beauty, grace, dignity, and modesty. So outwardly, if you see in the picture that is shown in the screen just now, each of these houses of worship looks so different because the architects are actually asked to, you know, even this single challenge to design the temple as perfect as possible to the world of um, uh, being. So they need to, you know, design it with dignity and at the same time with modesty, consider the functionality and at the same time, you know, take into consideration the economy. Yeah, so... Uh Joanna, I think uh, I had the privilege of going to the one in Delhi. I don't know. That's the first. That's the first uh, Baha'i temple or not? I'm not too sure. Uh, the one in Delhi was it? Is it Delhi? I think yes. The the Lotus one, you know. Delhi uh, is that the first one? I think so. Uh, no, historically, it's not the first. Time historically, it's not the first. Uh, but it was a magnificent one. I think all of the ones that you have showed are really magnificent. So great, uh, Joanna. I would like to ask you. Uh, what, are the, what is the Baha'i view on marriage and family? You, you elaborated very well on, on these temples and all. Maybe you could also share with us a bit more on that view of marriage and family. Uh, how do Baha'i uh, faith view marriage and family? Right, thank you. So the family is actually a fundamental unit or the building block of society. So in this way, we can also see the family as like a nation in nature. So if we want to achieve unity on the larger scales, the values and practices that foster unity has to start from the family itself. So it's a social space where everyone in the family can develop those praiseworthy qualities and capacities. And it also provides the setting uh, for us to learn about mutual respect to another person's rights and also to carry out responsibilities that can bring about the progress of the family. So in terms of marriage, in the Most Holy Book, Baha'u'llah actually asked the believers to enter into wedlock so that they can bring forth children who can recognize God and follow his commandments. So of course, procreation of children is one of the primary purpose of marriage, but it is not the only purpose because Baha'u'llah has raised marriage to the status of divine institutions. So while giving due importance to the physical aspects of a marital union, it is considered subordinate to the moral and spiritual purpose. So a true marriage must be a union of both the body as well as the spirit. And the husband and wife has to be like a loving companion and also a spiritual comrade and a great rock of strength to one another. So the law of marriage is important to set the world in order. It is also known as a fortress of well-being. So although this command of entering into wedlock is directed to individuals, but it has a very far-reaching effects on society. So uh, the love between a husband of wife and wife is actually the reflections of the love of God that each sees and is attracted to the qualities of the person because he reflects the attributes of God. So in the act of choosing a marriage partner, so one, the youth or one is actually uh, counseled to be thoroughly acquainted with the character of that person and when the decision comes to marriage they have to seek parental consent from both living parents the reason of seeking consent is not just a sign of respect to the parents 
but it also forms the basis for the believers um, to um, to also bring about the unity of two family. Because like marriage is not only the individual matters between two individuals, but it's a joining together of two families. So when this bond is formed, the love naturally extends itself to the entire family in raising children in a loving and united environment. So in the Baha'i community, I actually observe there are many interracial marriage. It's something that I see. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talk when you when you when you when you describe about marriage, uh, I I hear a lot of of uh, you know uh, similarities with with us Christians, Catholics, and you use the word that kind of caught my attention. It's a divine institution uh, that you make marriage, uh, and you know a little kind of a light bulb popped up in my head. Uh, does does that mean marriage is eternal? It is an unbreakable bond. Uh, and would that mean that there isn't an idea about like divorce uh, in the Baha'i faith? Right. Okay. Uh, so just just because because you use the word divine, it's almost you know a, a god-like relationship. So the kind of thing. The question that came to my head was was that is it an unbreakable bond? Yeah. So uh, like the 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 when we say a sacred institutions, you know, like, and also we also emphasize on the importance of love as a spiritual quality that you're attracted to a person because of the spiritual quality he reflects in terms of, uh, from God. So if, if the, if the bond of marriage is just founded on mere passions, these will be a temporarily physical bonds. But if it's founded on a spiritual bond, then this bond will actually endure throughout all the worlds of God. Yeah, so in terms of divorce, um, it's actually um, try like the council, as I understand from the writings, we, we try to avoid divorce. Like if there's a, you know, there's really a conflict that is so bad between two individuals, um, they are asked to, you know, uh, engage in prayer and also maybe like uh, give themselves some period of time before maybe a year before they come to these decisions of uh, divorce, which is very much discouraged in the Baha'i faith. Yeah. Perhaps, Perhaps, I, yeah, delaying, please. Delaying. Yeah. Perhaps I can add on that because the process of uh, divorce, it, it does happen, right? Quite unfortunately sometimes, but you know, um, the process of undergoing divorce itself is not just the decision of the two individuals. In fact, because the local spiritual assembly presided on the occasion of the wedding itself, right? So, the local spiritual assembly plays an important role in ensuring that uh, if a couple so decides to uh, you know separate uh, they need to go through a process of counseling and of course the local spiritual assembly would would meet with the individuals uh, involved in this uh, in this marriage and and try to counsel them to the best you know in the best way possible and and the the writings also say right to leave no stone unturned when it comes to actually people making a decision to to get a divorce so there is what we call a year of patience which then also needs to go through a proper procedure the local spiritual assembly has to take into consideration the the, the situation you know for whatever reasons that there's a decision that the the couple decides to divorce and then passes this information on to the National Spiritual Assembly so that there is this clear understanding that if a divorce is to take place, it is not one that is just done on the whim, but actually uh, the community 
the institution is involved in this because we we want to preserve the unity in the community itself. Yeah, don't, don't, don't worry. Don't, we are we are not promoting divorce in any way here. But you know, when 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 Joanna said uh, a divine institution, because that is something that's very 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 powerful word that she used. Uh, it it actually kind of indicates the 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 how important marriage is and how marriage is viewed. Because uh, not many religions use those words. That's, that's why I kind of picked up from what she said. Something else that you said also, you also mentioned about. Uh, there are many interfaith and intercultural marriages uh, uh, within the Baha'i faith. Uh, Muklis, you are you are in the in the National uh, Assembly, and uh, how how does the Baha'i faith view uh, other religions uh, in terms of you know what what is what is the the view of of a person of another faith? Is interreligious engagement an important aspect of, of the Baha'i faith? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Father, for the question. Yeah, so um, Abdul Baha always encourages to, to, to concert um, with all religions, with uh, spirit of friendliness. Uh, so, like myself, um, living in, in the Asli villages, <clears throat> consisting of um, Asli from uh, other faiths, like we, we also have uh, Christian friends, we also have uh, Muslim friends in our community. But actually, it's, it's rather than look, looking at others as others or as strangers, we are looking more ourselves like a family. So even involved uh, in many um, uh, as one as together. Yeah. Delay, delay I, I think we are having a little, little bit of a, 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 a technical issue with the connection. Uh, Delaney, if I could just move that question to you a little bit. Uh, sure. In terms of you know the, the Baha'i faith of among all the other religions, it's, it's one of the most recent. Uh, 174 years if i is that correct uh, yeah. something that we mentioned uh, which means that many of the other religions already pre-existed within the context uh, so even even for bahaiula uh, who who started this faith he, he he knew the existence of all the other faiths uh, that that were around uh, existed at that time what, what kind what kind of a relationship do you all have uh, with peoples of other religion uh, what what kind of a you know uh, how do you how do you see another religion a, a person of another religion? Well, as what Mukis was also uh, trying to share before he had this technical difficulty, um, we are we are called on to consort with people of all faiths in the utmost uh, friendliness and fellowship, uh, with the understanding that um, these religions, all right are divine in nature and they come from the same god that we we all worship and so uh, as i mentioned earlier father clarence uh, baha'u'llah you know says he is a manifestation of god and we in in the scriptures itself in the writings we acknowledge the the um, the role of the divine educators of the past revelations and and we accept them as manifestations of god so to to accept baha'u'llah is to accept christ is to accept buddha is to accept 
um, Moses is to accept Muhammad. All of these are divine educators sent by God. And so if we if we say we accept all of these divine educators or divine messengers, then we must also look at our brothers and sisters in all other faiths as our own as well. You know, there is no distinction. You 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 use the word two words that kind of uh, I pick up. Use two words interchangeably. Use the word uh, manifestation and messenger. Are you meaning the same thing, or do they mean different things? Um, in in many contexts, they are about the same. In the same okay, sense right. that they are, yeah, the the embodiments of God on on earth. You know, um, they carry a message. They have a revelation that has been revealed by God, and they have. Uh, a holy book and they come with you know a new set of teachings that that would reform the the life of humanity in the period of history yeah because you use these two words i was trying to kind of see whether you, you actually meant the same thing uh in that sense yeah, yeah it's interesting yeah maybe maybe you'd ask you so since you edit we're just sharing about marriage and family what is Baha'i's position on on women? Because both of you are here, you know, you are here today. It's interesting to get your views on what uh, Baha'i position says, or other Baha'i views on women. How do they uh, stand? That whether it's worship or whether it's relationship. Maybe you could share a little bit on that, Elaine. Okay. Yeah. Maybe so one of the <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing you can see is that if Joanna and I are here, uh, two to one, <laughs> it says a lot about the status of women in the community. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the principles of the Baha'i faith is the equality between women and men. Um, and the idea here is that the soul has no sex, right? Um, if we're all spiritual beings uh, just in this material form for the, the, the span of our life here on earth, right? Um, essentially, our spirit or our soul is is genderless in that sense. And so there is no limit to what a soul can do uh, in terms of like worshipping God, you know, getting learning about God and knowing God or worshipping God. It is a universal uh, capacity for all, you know, regardless of whether you're male or female. So uh, with that understanding that, you know, the soul has no sex, right, and that we all have the capacity um, then we should be, uh, women should be afforded uh, all, you know, all opportunities to participate in every sphere of activity, right? Uh, the only differences that you can see are probably the, the physical differences, like, you know, men are just slightly more, uh, you know, physically stronger, you know, they have a bigger build and they can, they can do more heavy work in that sense. And, and women have other, you know, uh, abilities that maybe men uh, would not have as much. But those are just, you know, physiological differences. So one way to actually understand this concept of the equality between women and men is to think about this um, uh, analogy of a bird. Okay, so if we imagine the bird to be the world of humanity, and one wing of the bird is men, and the other wing of of the bird is women, right? Uh, and we know that, you know, in the world today, the population is about 50-50, 50% men and 50% women. Right. So imagine a bird that's trying to flap its wings, but if one wing is stronger than the other, right? And and that's what we kind of see in the world today that you know there's a little bit too much emphasis on you know male dominance in that sense. And women have not been given so much access to to you know education or to opportunities in other areas. 
um, the wing is very weak, right? And so when when a bird is trying to flap its wings and trying to soar, you know, how far can it go if one wing is stronger than the other, right? And probably it can only just move in circles in a sense or even can't even take off, right? So in order for humanity to progress, then we understand that there has to be uh, equality in the sense that both men and women should be working together. Not that women now becomes more uh, important than men or that, you know, uh, there is an imbalance again, right? But both must work in tandem to recognize the complementary role that men and women play in the building of society. And so in, in the Baha'i community, then we see that women play a very significant role in, in many areas of the life of the society. Uh, you see women participating in community activities, not just only as the attendees of a gathering, but also the initiators of you know, programs. So if you think about you know, programs for the spiritual education of children, you see young mothers actually engage in teaching classes for children. You also see women initiating devotional gatherings, so bringing people together in prayer. And we also see women serving on institutions. So uh, even at the local spiritual assembly or the national spiritual assembly, you see women um, participating in elections, um, offering their thoughts and opinions in consultation with others in the community. So in every sphere of activity, you will see women and men working side by side because that is the understanding of the role of women in the society. But with that, I'm also going to share with you uh, another interesting thing about the role of women that maybe is something that could be quite different from how it is in culture. Now, in a family, if uh, the family can only afford to educate one child and if they have a son and a daughter, um, usually people would think that, you know, if you can afford to send one child to school, you should send your son, right? Because your son is uh, able to take care of, you know, the affairs of the family and, and do all kinds of things. But in the Baha'i faith, the advice given, the counsel given is that we should send the daughter to school, right? Why the daughter? Because the, the understanding is that girls will become mothers and mothers are the first educators of the next generation of, of children. And we see that, you know, this idea of the education of the girl child is actually very much widely uh, discussed in, in world or, you know, public discourses around the world. Uh, in countries where there is a very wide disparity between uh, girls getting education and boys receiving education, you see child mortality rates actually dropping because when the women are educated, they, they know how to actually take care of themselves and also their children. And that, you see, has effects that are more than just, you know, um, educating a son, right? You, you educate a, a daughter, you have more benefits for the family and for the society. Very interesting outlook, really. Father Clarence. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to move into something quite different from family, uh, women, uh, or, or young people, which we will talk a little bit about it in a short while. Uh, this is something that most people ask, you know, and, and I think this is a, a, a reality that we have to deal with. If we talk about the life, we also talk about death. Uh, when we talk about death, we can't help but talk about after death. Uh, we have had different religions speak to us about uh, the idea of, of there, is, uh, there is a heaven. Uh, we've had listened to about the idea of a, a reincarnation uh, coming back in another form uh, after after death. Uh, in the Baha'i faith, what is the view of, of death, the transition from life to death? 
and what happens after death? What, what, what concepts of after death are there in the Baha'i faith? Okay, uh, maybe I can answer that question. Sure. So the Baha'is do believe in the life after death. So Baha'u'llah actually wrote in the writings that death is actually a messenger of joy because we are united with our creator. So the true life is actually the life of the soul and our soul has the beginning in this world and it will continue to progress in the other worlds of God after our physical death. So our body will return to um, the, the earth, but then our soul will continue to progress. So we can understand this concept by considering like how a baby is developing in the mother's womb. So in the world of the womb, the baby is developing all the senses and faculties that he needs in this world. Like, for example, he's developing the eyes, the ears, the limbs. All these are important faculties which will help him in this uh, material world. So in that world, he acquired all the requisite powers that he needs in this world. So likewise, what we need in the next world, we will obtain and prepare it here. So, but we can only achieve a very limited understanding of what we have in the next world. Just like, you know, in the womb, the baby is not aware of what's going to happen to him in this world. Maybe it's just like a belly layer away, but it's close to him, this reality. What he can do is to prepare. Like we understand in the next world, it's a spiritual realm. So in this world, we are actually trying to acquire those heavenly spiritual qualities. Because after we die and live this world, we cannot bring our physical bodies and material possessions with us in the next world. If, if, I, if I heard you earlier, uh, Joanna, just help me understand. I, I thought I heard you say the body comes back to earth and, and the soul continues to live. Is, th is that what I heard? Yeah, that's right. So which, so which means that, is it something like, you know, is, what do you mean when the body comes back to the earth? It just means the decomposition of the body. Ah, all right. Okay, all right. Okay, so it's not that it, it, it comes back in another form. You're, no. you're not saying, okay, just to be clear when, when you say... Sorry for that, uh, yeah, <laughs> All right, so, so there, there, is a, there is a concept of an afterlife of another place, a spiritual place uh, in the Baha'i faith. Would that be correct? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Would it be would it be reincarnation or something like a soul by itself in a, another state of life? Uh, so reincarnation in in our understanding is not possible, like um, mm -hmm. because that would mean regress, right? And and mm -hmm. and Abdul Baha has also explained this concept of reincarnation and why it it's not possible. It's like you, once you are born in this world, right? Let's say a baby is born into this world. It's not possible for the baby to return into the mother's womb. That would be very unnatural. It's against the law of nature in that sense. So likewise, yeah. you know, it, it, we can only progress. We can only move forward, right? Forward. And, and like what Joanna was describing about the world of the womb and how we, we are so close to this next world, but we, we still cannot perceive it. Um, it. It's only when time comes, right? the time comes for us to go, to go metaphorically, uh, fig figuratively, um, that's when we will we will experience you know the life in that next world. Uh, but it will not be the same physical world that we have here. Like you know, if I have my devices with me right now, I can't bring my devices with me to the next life. I think, but I think I think that that applies that applies to every religion in that sense. Yeah. You know, you don't take yeah. your material pos uh, uh, possession with you into the yeah. into the next. That's the reality that we have to deal with. Uh, you know, as much as we want to accumulate here, we know that uh, these things uh, are not eternal. 
but I, th I think some people also want to know, for example, for in in death, uh, how how do you uh, uh, how do you give the la your last respects to the dead? I mean, is is the body uh, buried, or because in some other traditions they are cremated? Uh, in the Baha'i faith, how do you how what do you do? Okay, so uh, we bury the dead, all right? Okay. Uh, and in fact, there are Baha'i burial grounds across the country. Um, the, the government has provided us with a burial land and we have uh, burial grounds for the Baha'is to, uh, to bury their loved ones, right? So the reason for burying the dead uh, is to show respect for the human body because uh, the body was once... The, the temple for the soul, right? It, it was the instrument for the soul to carry out its, you know, uh, functions or the activities, right? So in, in life, you know, in order for us to, to practice our qualities of, you know, patience or kindness and all, we needed this body to do these things, right? So that the body was useful for our development in this world. And so to accord it that same amount of respect and reverence, we bury the body. So the body is wrapped in a shroud of silk or cotton. Okay, there are certain uh, procedures for how the body is to be wrapped in the in the shroud, and uh, there is also a ring, a bare ring that uh, the the body um, that will be placed on the finger of the body. So, on the ring itself, it's written, "I came forth from God and returned unto Him, detached from all save Him, holding fast to His name, the merciful, the compassionate." And this body then is placed in a coffin. And, and then before interment, we say the prayer for the dead. Uh, so that is the only congregational prayer that we say. Um, and that is only done during the funeral ceremony before the body is interred in the ground. Well, yeah, just now, uh, there's one question. I mean, I was, uh, was quite uh, interested to know also, which I forgot, I mean, not forgot, which I think uh, coming to my mind very excitedly, uh, Mukhlis is back here. <laughs> Okay, maybe he's having some technical issues. I want to ask about prayer time. Anyone of you could answer prayer time and uh, also meditation. Many traditions, they have prayer time and meditation. Do you all have a, time, a prayer time set aside or any meditation uh, that is especially uh, designed for the faith? Maybe Mukhlis would like to answer or any one of you? So prayer actually in the Baha'i concept is like the conversations with the Creator. Of course, we can uh, use our own words in prayer, but um, the Baha'is usually use the uh, writings of the Bab and Baha'u'llah and Abdu Baha, the central figures of the faith, in our prayer. Because we felt like these prayers like express better what we want to express, and we find these words are imbued with the creative power. Yeah, of course, like Mukhlis mentioned earlier, in in the prayer we have the um, obligatory prayers that we need to say out of the three we can choose one yeah um, there are also prayers for other occasions that we can choose and decide there is time for individual prayers that and it's also a culture for Baha'is to have co communal collective worships with friends from all walks of life yeah, maybe Mukhlis want to add on Yeah, I, I think we are having some 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 connection uh, bandwidth issues with with Muklis. He's not he's not being he's not able to hear us. Uh, we are you know they they always say that you know time flies when you're when you're having fun and time flies when you're having an interesting conversation. I'm sure there there's so much more that you would like to share. Uh, 
as we always say that uh, you know it, it is it is a great injustice uh, to to want to discover another faith uh, within one hour uh, but all these conversations are, are meant to be to be starters uh, conversation continues uh, with other people so at least when we come to meet somebody of a baha'i faith we at least we have an understanding we know you know what what the faith is all about and how they live their faith and what are some of the main tenets of their faith you know some in, in this in this when we live in malaysia i think uh, ignorance is not a bliss anymore if you don't know somebody else's faith uh, it is very important to know some someone else's faith but kind of before we kind of kind of wrap up the conversation this evening uh, joanna just to, to to understand a little bit more like in terms of uh, social action you know uh, do you have something uh, with, with the baha'i community uh, social outreach uh, or, or faith education for young people uh, uh, you know uh, ch uh, charity uh, works of mercy or charity do you have these things uh, that are organized uh, in different localities so um, we can, uh, yeah, Baha'is around the world, they, because I, as we mentioned earlier, service is a part of life that characterizes the life of a Baha'i faith. So, uh, so people from all around the world, they are engaged in different acts of social activity. But one thing that is in common for all the Baha'is in every community uh, around the globe, we are engaged in four core or four main areas of activities. One is the devotional meetings, which is a collective version. And then there are also study circles for those age 15 and above. And for the children, we have the children's classes for those age uh, 5 to 12. And for those age junior youth, we call it a special age 12 to 15, we have the junior youth spiritual empowerment uh, program for them. So globally, all these materials for all the four core activities, they are same globally. Uh, they are just being translated to different language. And it's available online that you can find it in the Ruhi Institute website. So attributed to this concept of oneness that is envisioned by Baha'u'llah, all these activities are open to all people from all walks of life that we are taking great care to avoid the pitfalls of exclusivity. So Baha'is work with like-minded peoples and individuals from all walks of life. Every individual is seen as an effective protagonist and an agent of change. So most of these activities, uh, three of these core activities are educational based. The study circle actually offered by the Ruhi Institutes help the um, participants to explore systematically about spiritual principles and the writings. It also helps the participants to build their capacity in service that helps to contribute back to this process. So graduates of these programs can develop the capacity to engage in meaningful dialogues with others, educate the younger generations. If I may share a little bit more about the children class, which I am more involved in this area. So one of the common misconceptions towards religion insights for brands is dogmatisms. But the spiritual education for children, the children class consists in the Baha'i faiths is actually differs fundamentally from the impositions of dogmatic beliefs, sometimes associated with religious instructions. It instead aims to foster a love for knowledge, an open attitude towards learning, and a constant desire to investigate reality. So in this uh, children's classes, the children are actually helped to acquire spiritual qualities like truthfulness, purity of hearts, generosity, kindness, which are universal qualities and attributes of God that you know can be reflected in the mirror of the human heart. So year after year, this material built on this understanding of these qualities and the lessons related to history have been added in the third year, for example, they learn about the lives of the previous manifestations 
where came and brought this divine knowledge and wisdom. So they came to appreciate all the previous manifestations that came to us. So the goal of these classes is to help the children and also junior youth to reach a stage which that they can understand and also act upon the um, imperatives so that they can tend to their own individual development as well as to contribute to the well-being of society. So many a times, like uh, in terms of religion, we tend to avoid speaking it to others because it's seen as a personal thing, right? But if you look at the context of history, it becomes clear that beyond personal salvation, religion actually serves as a primary cause for human development. So besides the individual using the writings for individual development, the Baha'is also see the twofold moral purpose that we helps to develop ourselves and also service to the humanity. These are inseparable aspects for a Baha'i. I hope that answered the questions. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's a lot, a lot to digest uh, in, in this short period of time. Uh, hopefully, we are able to somehow uh, kind of get an idea of what the Baha'i faith. But, but before we before we let you go, I mean, just one one question. I think people want to know in terms of uh, the Baha'i faith. Uh, approximately, maybe uh, Delaney, and I think we had this conversation. Approximately, how many uh, people uh, who profess the Baha'i faith uh, in Malaysia would there be in Malaysia? Uh, from a uh, an estimate, just an estimate. I'm sure we we don't have access to the national census uh, records. Yeah, um, we would say approximately two hundred thousand Baha'is in okay. the whole of Malaysia. Yeah. Would you know worldwide? Just curious. Worldwide, about they would say about seven million. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah. I think just you know to help. The whole conversation uh, this this evening was intended. I know there are many questions people who want to ask. Uh, the whole intention of this conversation is just to kind of uh, open a little window uh, uh, to to into the Baha'i faith to help people know a little bit more. Uh, because of all, I, I mean, I'm sorry to say, but I, I I would think at least leading up to this conversation, I've been asking people of all the faiths that we've been talking about. I think Baha'i faith is the one that is least uh, known about by by many people. Uh, so this has been a good opportunity to to kind of like you know to educate uh, to help people understand a, a bit better uh, what the Baha'i faith is for the Xavier. Yes, uh, Father Clarence, I think you would agree with me that we would want to hear more from them, but just that time factor is one one essential issue that we can't continue. But we have learned quite a bit, you know, from you, and I think the viewers would agree also that they would have enjoyed the session with all of you. So. Uh, Time to come to say thank you. Uh, I would also like to say thank you to Catholics at home who has been hosting this program. Mark at the back end, Amiya, of course, who is the program organizer, and uh, the Baha'i team uh, who have arranged this session, uh, Elinor, Helen, Marianne, Charlotte. I thank all of you. And uh, not to forget our, our host for all these weeks. Most of the uh, sessions were hosted by our rather the moderator, Father Clarence. Thank you, Father Clarence, for taking your time off to be with us also. And our speakers, not to forget, Delaney Ho, Muklish Sahak, and Joanna Go. Thank you very much for taking your time off to be with us. Truly appreciated your rich sharing from all of you. And uh, to the viewers, we want to congratulate you because you, are follow you have been following us, you viewers listening for uh, listening, being good listeners, following us throughout the program faithfully, I guess, most of you. Don't forget to tune in next week, same day, same time, for another interesting episode on world religions. And so 
what is on next week? Maybe we can see tonight. Just have that uh, little screen up so that we will have. Yes, this is the interesting session that we are going to have next week. We have two interesting guests with us. And so wishing you all well until we meet again next week. Till then, good night and God bless. Until we meet again, take care. Father, and before and and before we before we end, we always uh, say a prayer, uh, and we say a prayer for unity. We pray. We say a prayer for harmony. Uh, perhaps I could invite uh, Muklis to to say a prayer in your own way, uh, to pray for our nation, to pray for our society, for greater peace and harmony in the world too. Okay, sure. Let's pray. <clears throat> My Tuhan, izinkanlah semua manusia dunia ini untuk mendapat tempat dalam syurga. Kepercayaanmu Supaya Tiada benda tercipta Kekal jauh Daripada lingkungan Kesenangan baikmu Sejak zaman abadi lagi kau telah berupaya Untuk membuat apa saja kau menyenangi Dan umum daripada apa saja engkau redoi dan umum daripada apa saja engkau redoi God, our loving Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this evening, for this opportunity to have this conversation, understanding world religions with the Baha'i faith. We pray for our country, we pray for peace, we pray for harmony, that as Malaysians, we will always strive to live together in peace, to be able to understand and respect one another. We pray for all our viewers this evening, that you will continue to bless them and keep them safe during this time and also to use each one of us for your greater glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So take care. Good night. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. And good night. Good night.